Hey everyone, just a quick note here before uh, this podcast starts. Uh, I made one uh, kind of embarrassing uh, error on this recording, uh, which I guess is just part of the deal. When you're doing podcasts, it's going to happen. But I referred to the character Tevya in uh, the play Fiddler on the Roof uh, and the actor uh, Topol. And I really meant to say Topol because he's the one who recently passed away. And Tevya was the uh, character that he played, obviously, uh, in the play and uh, and the production. So, um as you listen to it, uh, please forgive me that mistake, and uh, otherwise, I hope you enjoy and love to hear your feedback uh, on this episode. Thanks. Hello, welcome to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I have a, a few stories uh, that relate to the topics of uh, development and planning and transportation that I would like to tell and uh, figure out how those all uh, potentially tie together. Uh, just a series of uh, observations and, and experiences that I've had over the years that I, I think many of you have probably had. You may recognize some of these stories and share some of these experiences. And I think they're instructive into uh, what we're dealing with today uh, in our communities and trying to think about uh, what, the, uh, what the problems are that we run into consistently and look towards productive solutions, solutions that actually make a difference. Uh, but in the, first, in the first step, you really have to understand you know, what's going on and what the issues are. And so uh, I, I ran across a, a, or I thought about a few things that I have experienced over the years that I wanted to relate to you all today in three stories. So with that, as the legendary Paul Harvey used to say, Page one. Several years ago, when when I was still living in Savannah, uh, I had the opportunity uh, to participate uh, in uh, different uh, planning uh, sort of mini conferences and seminars at uh, Savannah State University, uh, which was is a historically black uh, college uh, in Savannah. And they had, a, they had a planning program, a, a small program, but, uh, but one nonetheless, and some, some faculty there that I really liked and, and uh, enjoyed talking to and working with. And they, they would invite me to come and speak and, and talk about uh, issues that were current uh, in the field and development, et cetera. And it was always kind of an enjoyable you know, couple of days in, in talking about planning issues, much, much of which was relevant to Savannah, but not all of it. it was, a lot of it was just kind of thinking about what was happening uh, uh, globally or uh, in larger cities. Uh, so we had occasion one year uh, after a series of presentations to kind of sit down and have a conversation about uh, what was going on. And, and a lot of these, you know, if I were to paint a picture of what was going on, you know, a lot of these were, were fairly small group conversations. So there might be a group of, say, you know, a dozen students that were there, a few professors, and maybe you know, I don't know, anywhere between 10 and 20 other attendees. So this was, this was not a, uh, uh, you know, a room full of 100 people <laughs> uh, and, uh, or 200 people who were all kind of huddled around and waiting with bated breath to, to hear uh, the, the people at the, at the table speak. This was really more of almost like a more intimate conversation about the issues, which actually made it, uh, I think, more fun, more interesting. Uh, and, and more compelling from the standpoint of uh, trying to understand each other and talk about these issues. So 
One of the things that I recall uh, is uh, there, there, at, at this particular uh, day, there was a planning um, professor from uh, Georgia Tech in Atlanta, young guy, uh, who uh, was participating in the discussion. And uh, we were having a long uh, back and forth about uh, what was going on in cities and the nature of trying to build walkable places or make existing places more walkable. And um, he said something, uh, I'll leave his name out, it's not really important, um, because this is really about a a larger uh, issue that I that I see often uh, in the field of planning and within a lot within a lot of the professions. And uh, this is a really smart young guy, like 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 a lot of people that I run across uh, in academic areas, very intelligent, um, you know, really uh, has a deep appreciation, I think, for walkable places. Uh, but we started to have this conversation about um, the changes uh, that happened in cities, let's say, uh, starting in the 1950s and 60s, the, the major uh, real top-down efforts with urban renewal and with building highways through cities and, and, and so much change that happened in that era. And, uh, and the discussion came back around to, well, you know, how do we, uh, how do we move forward today uh, understanding what, uh, what, what is before us right now? Uh, for example, the, the, the conversation in, in many ways in that, in, in that uh, group was talking about the city of Atlanta and, um, you know, there's a legacy of those decisions that were made 60, 70 years ago that uh, have uh, are still felt today. Uh, and they're everything from major freeways that run through uh, the city that weren't there uh, previously to, you know, uh, just complete reconstruction uh, and demolition of parts of the city. And as we talked about these things. Um, I, I became uh, a, a, <laughs> probably unsurprisingly a, a bit of a, a voice of just kind of caution and skepticism in um, you know in, in thinking that uh, um, we have all the right approaches now or that a, a new large top-down effort uh, was really uh, the the path to go to fix all of the problems from a previous era. So. This, this guy said something that was really interesting that I thought. He said, well, he said, the thing is, we know what to do now. And that, I found that really interesting. That, uh, that, and he said it with extreme confidence, you know, that here we are today. Uh, we are obviously uh, wiser and smarter than people from a previous era uh, who made uh, the mistakes they made. And now we really know uh, how to fix the problems of our cities. All we need uh, is the the political will and the and the resources, uh, which which otherwise means money, uh, to do these things. And uh, so I, I couldn't let that go in that discussion. And uh, but I thought it was an important marker to me. Uh, about how we have these conversations about planning and development. And uh, the reality is, um, you know, we think uh, that we are uh, very wise uh, professionals today and individuals and that we really have evolved from the mistakes uh, from previous generations, whether those generations were one or two ago 
or whether they were 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Uh, we, we have a sense, uh, especially in the professional world, of superiority over um, people from another era. And, and I just wanted to point out and, and remind the people in attendance at that, you know, the people who were, those professionals who were undertaking the urban renewal projects, especially, uh, let's say the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, those were some of the smartest people of their generation and their era. And if you actually go back and watch uh, some of the videos, which do exist, you know, you can find them on YouTube and, and other places. You can, you can watch people like uh, Ed Bacon, um, one of the really famous legendary people in the urban planning world, uh, who's written and uh, wrote a number of books that uh, are required reading and in, in much planning education. Uh, and by the way, his uh, his son is the the actor Kevin Bacon. Um, so so everybody uh, in the planning world uh, completely wins the game of uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. But uh, if you watch those videos, there's some remarkable videos that Ed Bacon and his colleagues did, where uh, they described the urban renewal process that was uh, they were about to undertake in the city of Philadelphia uh, that had been planned. And it's nothing if not impressive in terms of the scope, the intelligence of the people that were pursuing these efforts, the confidence they had, the sheer confidence that what they were doing was the right thing to do, uh, that it was the just thing to do. Uh, And I can't help but often watch those and come back with more humility towards uh, my own efforts, towards our own efforts, because much of what was done in that era uh, through uh, some of these large-scale programs is really decried today as uh, really terrible, awful work, Um, that these people were, uh, they were stupid, they didn't know what they were doing, they were probably racist, um, that they had all of these flaws uh, that, um, you know, that today are just very obvious to us as the human beings in the 21st century. Um, but it wasn't obvious to them. Uh, it wasn't obvious to them that they uh, uh, were making big mistakes. They were undertaking what to them was a very thorough and thoughtful and scientific uh, process for making better cities which meant making a better world. And I do think they made a lot of mistakes. I absolutely am in the camp uh, that would is highly critical of the work that was done in the urban renewal era. In fact, we've often jokingly called it urban removal uh, instead of urban renewal. And so I, I think there's a ton to learn about what went wrong uh, but I think we need to ask ourselves the questions, you know, the deeper questions of why, why did they get, why did that generation get things so wrong? What was it they were missing? Uh, and was it the nature of how they were going about things as these massive uh, efforts that were fed from uh, highly funded uh, organizations and in, in a very top-down manner that were really imposed on people and on neighborhoods? Was it a set of design principles that was wrong? Was it a a lack of understanding of human nature and how humans like to get along 
was it all those things or some combination? Uh, and it, it's interesting to dive into it that way. But, but I think what it exposes is that uh, in every generation, we're all human beings and uh, we're not perfect. We all make uh, a lot of mistakes. We all have blind spots. I most certainly do. Uh, I'm sure everybody listening to, listening to this has their own uh, blind spots, whether it's an ideological blind spot or a cultural blind spot or you know, just our own biases that we carry. Um, and, and it's helpful to uh, approach all of these issues, I think, with a more of a sense of humility uh, and to ask, you know, what, what don't we know? What, uh, what, uh, who do we need to talk to? Uh, to really understand uh, what we're doing and how it may impact them and uh, and what is something that we're missing. So I came away from that, and for many years afterwards now, I, I frankly, I just kind of uh, have come to chuckle to myself uh, when I hear somebody have such uh, incredible confidence that, you know, we know what to do. We absolutely know what to do now. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I, I would like to make the point, I, I think we need to have decisive action. We need to uh, move, move forward with confidence on a lot of things. But when it comes to uh, really major changes in the landscape of our cities or in the lives of humans, I think it's better for us to stop and pause and ask, uh, what don't we know? Uh, are we really so sure uh, that we understand what we're doing and what the effects will be. Page two. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I was um, a big fan uh, of the movie um, Fiddler on the Roof and the play Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, and uh, this, this came to mind recently because the, uh, the famous uh, performer Tevya recently passed away. And, um, there, there's a, there's, yeah, I actually played the violin. I started taking up the violin when I was in the third grade and there's a substantial part of me that the reason I kept going and I was so fascinated uh, by the violin was because of Fiddler on the Roof and, uh, Tevye's performance in particular and, uh, just how much I loved and our family loved that, that show and, uh, and there was just something about it that really stuck with us. And, uh, you know, especially I think that one of the things that uh, sticks in my head was just the song tradition, you know, tradition, tradition. So this is the point where anybody listening can completely make fun of my, my attempts at singing. But, um, you know, that was that was a huge storyline in Fiddler on the Roof was really all about the uh, – what is the balance between uh, tradition uh, and moving forward? And, uh, and I've always been fascinated by this area uh, because I think it says a lot about us uh, as humans. You know, there's this, there's this constant conflict that is in all of our brains, in all of our society about uh, traditions that, uh, that are human traditions that we have had for centuries which of those traditions are good, which are not so good, uh, which are worth carrying forward, uh, which are not, um, and what it means to be connected 
to uh, long-term traditions. In, in our contemporary society, um, we tend to have this idea that um, we can just reinvent uh, every aspect of humanity. And we've really been, uh, we've kind of been on this push for, you know, well over 100 years. Uh, and in fact, the, in the world of architecture, which is the world, one of the worlds that I know the best, the, the entire modern uh, movement uh, in architecture was explicitly based on rejecting uh, the traditions of previous eras. Um, you know, there's, there are many people who have written and talked about this before. There's some great uh, books about all this and how it happened and why it happened. Uh, when I was in architecture school, I, I read uh, a lot of the, the great books by the modern masters. I, I loved them. I thought they were enthralling. Uh, they were, you know, they were exciting and and really uh, tapped into the energy that like a young 18, 19, 20 year old has uh, that is trying to, you know, in, in my case, find my place in the world, try to understand it, try to latch on to something that I could really believe in and and find meaning in. Uh, and so a lot of that, the intellectual work uh, and the writing that happened immediately after World War One, in the field of architecture is, is very thrilling. Um, and uh, there actually are uh, some still, again, some great videos around from uh, that era. Um, there's a, the, the podcast uh, 99% Invisible that Roman Mars does. He had a wonderful episode, or actually a two, I think a two-part piece, uh, must have been five or six years ago. Uh, about this topic that actually had uh, video footage from uh, some of the the great uh, modern early you know early modern architects and masters uh, as they were visiting Athens Greece and talking about you know creating uh, a new architecture and um, so I mean it's always kind of fascinating to me when people uh, in my world try to uh, try to disagree or argue that that group, um, you know, wasn't trying to uh, reject uh, all architecture before World War I. They, they explicitly were trying to reject it uh, and uh, really create a new breed of human. Uh, Le Corbusier wrote about this quite a bit in terms of the, the new type of human they were hoping to create and uh, the new types of cities uh, for humans that they were trying to, trying to create. Uh, and I wasn't alive in that era, so I don't know what things are like. I, I will tell you, I have watched the videos, and you know, as I mentioned, I read the books. I thought they were thrilling. I could very easily imagine myself being caught up in in what those modern masters were talking about and thinking, absolutely, yes, this sounds terrific. Let's do it. I'm on board 100% uh, without really thinking about what the consequences might be, you know, 20, 40 a hundred years down the road. So I, and I also understand that, you know, these were people who were, their lives were really uh, shattered by what happened in World War I. Um, you know, today we talk, and really for most of my lifetime, the, the history uh, that we talk about when we talk about the World Wars focuses so much on World War II. Uh, and obviously World War II, uh, it, it was, you know, in more of the recent past, uh, it was obviously unbelievably destructive and, and terrible. Um, 
But I think when you look back at the longer course of history, you really find that World War One was was the true turning point in uh, the modern world. Um, that was really the first time that we had you know mechanized weapons that could destroy entire armies. It was the time period when Europe, prior to World War One, was basically all ruled by monarchies. And at the end of World War One, it began the system of those countries becoming uh, some form of democracy. It was absolute sea change. And, and, and of course, you know, I think most people know that a lot of the decisions that were made at the end of World War One and the treaties that were signed and the things that happened really didn't resolve matters very well. And it, it ultimately... Uh, set the table for World War II. Uh, so, um, but it was a traumatizing event for Europeans in particular. Uh, certainly for Americans who went to war, uh, it, it was as well. But for Europeans who saw their continent um, laid waste uh, and completely destroyed in, in a way they, they couldn't have imagined, um, it, was, uh, it was terrifying. And the the people in on the more academic side of things like architects um, like people who think about cities uh, came out of that I think with some deep emotional scars and uh, again there are there are some wonderful books uh, that have been written about this uh, Anne Sussman's book uh, is is a great start um, so they they wanted a clean break they had been so horrified. And I think they felt like there was a human tradition here that wasn't working and we needed a clean break from the from the past. And part of that break was a visual break, was uh, what, um, what really became uh, the early modern architecture. Eventually that modern architecture evolved. And, you know, today it's, uh, it's over 100 years old and it's become uh, a tradition of itself. And uh, if you look around at what happens within the field of architecture, uh, we see that there's a lot of uh, references in new buildings to uh, early 20th century and uh, what we now call mid-century modern buildings. And there's basically been this revival of mid-century modern, which is, is many ways architects just kind of keeping that tradition uh, of sorts alive. And so uh, I, I like to argue that a lot of modern architecture has really just become a style no different from the historical styles that it was rejecting uh, in the early 20th century. So they were rejecting, you know, the, the Victorian era and they were, uh, they were rejecting the classical uh, design approach that had dominated architecture uh, for centuries. And they created a new tradition. And, uh, and that tradition now references itself uh, over and over again, uh, parallel to a revived interest the last 30 or 40 years in the classical traditions uh, that um, uh, architects and their clients have, have really picked up, up on. So we have this interesting and often frustrating debate about tradition uh, versus modern uh, in, in architecture. I also think about this as it relates uh, to food, uh, and that's kind of a this kind of a weird um, tangent. It may seem, but uh, I I love 
diving into uh, how people uh, think about food and and uh, the things that people eat, how food is prepared. Uh, I always hesitate to call myself a foodie. It sounds so pretentious. Uh, I, I don't really think of myself that way, but I do absolutely love good food. I love to cook food. Uh, I, I love enjoying meals with uh, with other people and good conversation. Um, but there, there was a video uh, several years ago when um, when Anthony Bourdain still had his uh, show when he was still alive. And he had an episode where he was in Spain and uh, he had this great scene on the beach with the chef Jose Andres, uh, one of the obviously more f- famous chefs in the world, a wonderful man, uh, incredible chef, has restaurants all over the world, all over the United States. Uh, and they had this fantastic scene where they were basically uh, cooking food right on the beach with water that came out of the sea and then uh, shrimp and other things. And they had this really great discussion about uh, how there was such a, a, a connection, a deep connection between that type of cooking uh, and how people have done it for centuries. And that there was this wonderful relationship between uh, the, a regular fisherman uh, who was making the same exact meal as these uh, famous chefs. And he had a, Jose Andres had a great line, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase here. Uh, I, uh, I hope I don't get this too wrong, but uh, essentially it was, if you don't have that connection to the past, you can't know who you are today or where you're going. Uh, and he talked about it in a relationship of cuisine and, and cooking. Uh, and that has become uh, obviously a very popular approach the last few decades within the world, within the culinary world, which is a, a deeper understanding of the way we used to cook before the industrialized uh, production and cooking of food that really picked up uh, after World War II. But I think the, uh, there's a deeper connection there to how we think about our places as well. And uh, again, thinking about what's working and, and what doesn't. Uh, when we started uh, not only producing modern architecture at scale, but also the suburban experiment at scale in the United States after World War II, we had a clean break with how uh, we had, uh, how humans had had the traditions of building cities for centuries. It was something brand new that we had never uh, done before. This massive uh, investment in infrastructure, in industrialized uh, home building and architecture, um, and the, the rapid construction of communities that were uh, essentially uh, built all at once. And, and when they were built, they were done. It was like, hey, we've built a, we built a place, now it's done. Uh, it's perfect. It doesn't need to change. It just needs to, you know, have the landscaping grow in. And that was uh, obviously uh, um, uh, an enormous shift for our culture and our society. It's something that we have been wrestling with for many, many years. Uh, I'm I I'm very honest with my own biases that I love the traditional uh, cities. I love the old cities. Uh, I love everything about you know the. Uh, the architecture, the lifestyle, 
um, the uh, the experiences that you have as a human being uh, in in old cities and towns uh, of all sizes, uh, really that were built uh, any time before, say, the 1930s. Um, but we also have this new tradition now, and uh, it's a real question of what happens to that tradition. Uh, we have a new tradition of uh, American-style uh, suburbia that I do not think is going away. Uh, um, some of it will fail, just in, in the same manner that um, some amount of older cities and towns failed uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but much of it, much of it will be with us uh, for certainly uh, the rest of my life and probably uh, indefinitely for 100, 200 years. And uh, I think it's a, it's a fascinating thing to, to think about. Um, how do these places evolve? Uh, how do they change? How do they build on their own traditions that, uh, that they have now? And as, uh, as somebody who certainly is more inclined you know, to love the older urban communities, and, and most of my friends and colleagues kind of feel that same way, uh, I think it's, it's important for us to, to shift our thinking and not just you know, imagine that these uh, suburban landscapes that we built over the last 60 or 70 years are just going to um, somehow turn into versions of 19th century uh, towns and cities. Um, I just don't see that happening. Um, but I do think they can evolve, and I think they can evolve in some really interesting ways that uh, adopt some of the traditions from the, the pre-modern era and, and, and really try to uh, enhance the lifestyle uh, for people in, in those communities. Uh, because I do think people in, in a lot of suburban communities still... You know they love they love their house they love uh, uh, they love there's an aspect of their lifestyle that they love but every time that I have presented in a suburban community and talked to people it, it also hits really home when I say wouldn't it be great if you had uh, an ice cream store that you could walk to down the block uh, with your kids uh, wouldn't it be great if you could hop on a bike and safely ride you know across town and not worry about the impacts of, you know, traffic and cars. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if you could, if you had uh, a sort of uh, mini downtown that was close by where you could go to and, uh, uh, and you just walk around it and enjoy it. Uh, and almost universally when I've had the chance to, to meet with people all over the country and in, in suburban areas, they respond to this very, very positively. These are very human things that we all want. Um, but there is a new tradition now and, uh, it, it, it will be interesting to see how it evolves. And I think it needs thoughtful people to, uh, take a look at what we have done, not look down our noses at it and try to understand and help it evolve and help, uh, more than anything, help the people who live in those places, uh, to lead rich and fulfilling lives uh, that uh, that make them want to uh, invest in those communities and make them wonderful places for themselves, for their families, and, and for their descendants. Um, because that built landscape, uh, for the most part, is just not going away. 
So that is a new tradition for us to think about. I, I wonder how Tevye, what, what sort of song he would write uh, uh, about that. Page three. Years ago, uh, when, uh, again, when I was living in Savannah, this is another Savannah story. Uh, I, uh, for, uh, for my Kansas City friends, uh, get used to it. I'm going to tell a lot of stories about Savannah. Uh, I used to uh, sometimes say to my Savannah friends, you know, sorry if I talk a lot about Kansas City, uh, but uh, now it's tried. It's time to pay that pay that uh, back the other direction um, because there was just always so much to talk about in regards to Savannah, Georgia, which is uh, such a wonderful, wonderful historic city. We lived there. Uh, or I, I lived in Savannah for about nine years uh, and uh, uh, met my wife there. We, we had a couple of kids um, before moving back to Kansas City. And, um, you know, most people know Savannah uh, for the historic district, uh, which, is, uh, w- which obviously is uh, the landmark historic district, the famous one square mile uh, that is the core of historic downtown Savannah. And uh, there's there is much more beyond that that is beautiful and interesting. There are actually, uh, I think, 13 historic districts uh, in Savannah. Uh, we lived uh, in a historic district just um, uh, just off the landmark district called uh, Thomas Square. And or, or I think it may have also been uh, the official name may have been like the uh, streetcar historic district. Uh, most of you who know historic places would recognize it as a as a very typical kind of neighborhood that you would see uh, in the uh, late 19th uh, century and uh, beautiful, you know, wonderful streets, beautiful architecture. Uh, we loved it. Uh, it was where we could afford to live. We couldn't quite afford to live. By the time we got uh, to buying a house in Savannah, the idea of purchasing a home in the landmark district uh, was really beyond our reach uh, unless we wanted to go much uh, smaller, which we did not want to do. Uh, so we bought a townhouse uh, in the Thomas Square area, and um, it's uh, which, again, we love the neighborhood, and, and uh, it has its own wonderful charms um, uh, that uh, uh, makes it a great place to live. Uh, but most people know Savannah for you know, that, that, uh, historic footprint, which is really fairly small, uh, in terms of the, the overall geographic, uh, scope of the city of Savannah, uh, and its neighboring communities. Uh, once you get outside the historic footprint of the city, Savannah is much like any other city uh, in America. And it has, uh, suburbs, you know, from every era, uh, including currently built places, uh, big uh, big roads, or uh, as strong towns calls them, strodes, um, highways, uh, you know, all the typical uh, sort of landscape that you would see uh, throughout the country. In fact, there there's a fascinating thing that you can do if you ever have the time in Savannah. The, the major spine through the middle of the city is a street uh, called Bull Street. Uh, that's the the sort of north south spine through the historic district. A couple streets over is uh, a street called Abercorn uh, Street, 
um, you can take Abercorn Street from the river uh, and it goes all the way out um, to the suburban fringe and uh, ultimately to uh, Interstate 95 on the edge of the city. And it's almost like this fantastic time capsule that you get through every era of American uh, development from the colonial era right on the river uh, from the 1730s, basically, all the way through every preceding uh, decade and century uh, of development in the city. It's, it's really pretty remarkable. Uh, so it's something you have to drive in order to, to see it all, but it's, it's a fascinating cross-section through American cities. So uh, that's a bit of a long-winded intro to say that, you know, there's a whole lot of Savannah that is not like the historic district. And if you live in Savannah uh, and live your live you know a, a fairly normal life in Savannah, you're going to spend um, as much time uh, outside the historic footprint as you are inside. Especially if you were somebody like us who you know we had little kids and you know you're running around town. If you're uh, you know if you're going to go to Home Depot and, and and get some supplies for a home project. If you're uh, you know if you uh, want to go to the mall for whatever reason, you know, to, to go shopping. If you want to go do activities in, in different parts of the city, you're, you're going to be driving around the city just like, you know, any other city in America. There, there's a wonderful part of our daily life that we could do by walking and riding a bike. Uh, and we did as much of that as we could. But you, you still can't escape the reality that you're in an American city. And uh, if, uh, if you have uh, a typical middle-class lifestyle, you're going to be driving around the city uh, a fair amount. So uh, this story uh, relates to the part of driving uh, around uh, Savannah. So one of the, one of the uh, early years that I was in Savannah, I uh, went to a public meeting related to a, uh, a highway. Uh, I don't know if I would call it a highway project. It was, it was more of like a transportation study for uh, uh, a major east-west street that sort of bridges the historic area and the not historic area called uh, Victory Drive. And there was a portion of uh, an area of Victory Drive uh, where it intersects uh, a freeway uh, called uh, called the Truman Parkway of all things. So I always thought that was fascinating as a Kansas City guy to have uh, a uh, the, one of the uh, Belt freeways in Savannah it was named after Harry Truman. Uh, so right at that uh, intersection where um, the Truman Parkway and Victory Drive uh, intersect, Victory Drive at that point is you know it's it's like a lot of suburban strodes. I think it's about six lanes. Uh, it's um, right adjacent to uh, the aforementioned Home Depot and uh, a Target and a major shopping area uh, and all the sorts of uh, highway and strip commercial uh, stuff that you might see in a, in a lot of uh, suburban America, although it is interspersed with the occasional uh, lovely live oak trees that you see that gives it a, the whole, a whole different look and feel. Um, but I remember going to this public meeting about this transportation project and, and just kind of inquiring about, um, this intersection and, and, 
and and there was a lot of discussion about how to make that intersection safer. And uh, I have done some work over the years, uh, done quite a bit of work in transportation and transportation planning. I've had the good fortune to work with some really brilliant uh, people over the years who uh, understand a variety of solutions and who really appreciate um, the the sort of approach to doing walkable places and and places that are really geared towards enhancing safety and pedestrian safety. And one of the things in that world you find a lot of is there's a lot of uh, uh, appreciation for and advocacy for uh, roundabouts as an intersection uh, device. And uh, uh, it's something that's obviously very common in other parts of the world. Uh, it's started to become more common in the United States. Some some states have adopted them much more enthusiastically than others. Uh, I'm in Missouri now, and I, I, I see driving through the state that our Missouri Department of Transportation uh, is building many more roundabouts now than they used to. Um, but a big part of the reason why that is is because they have just been provably shown to be incredibly safe intersection devices vastly safer than just having uh, a traffic signal uh, at an intersection. Uh, And that's because uh, everybody coming into an intersection has to slow down. You have no choice but to slow down and yield and proceed through cautiously. Uh, And that creates an atmosphere of uh, where people just uh, are paying attention a little bit more and are uh, safer in their driving behaviors than, than if they had the opportunity to just keep on going. Uh, and uh, so you start to see now where roundabouts have become especially uh, common at a lot of these types uh, of interchanges. I think the very first one that I ever looked at and studied with with some interest was actually in Vail, Colorado, where uh, right off the exit for Interstate 70, in Vail, um, they had uh, a huge problem with um, traffic, uh, uh, with some safety issues, uh, with a very standard uh, signalized intersection off the uh, off the highway there. And they were put, the Colorado Department of Transportation replaced it with a uh, with a, a roundabout on either end of the highway interchange. So you can imagine if you're exiting or entering. Uh, the interstate, usually, you know, they line each other up. One side exits as another side enters. And then on the other side of the bridge, <clears throat> there's the same uh, intersection. That's like a, a often called a diamond uh, intersection. And uh, <clears throat> so they put roundabouts in uh, uh, on either end of it. And um, not only did the roundabouts um, uh, really reduce any accident, uh, issues and and or s- certainly the severity of accidents, but it also uh, did a, they do a wonderful job of keeping traffic uh, moving. So they actually helped the traffic flow, uh, uh, which was uh, which was actually one of the go- goals of the uh, installation in Vale. And so uh, they roundabouts have had this kind of very interesting dual purpose of um, uh, aiding and abetting uh, traffic flow, but at slow enough speeds that they're very, very safe. And so uh, insurance, uh, uh, insurance uh, institutes and others have, have really been encouraging uh, engineers and, and, and state DOTs to, uh, to use more roundabouts when they can at intersections. And 
so when I saw this plan, when I happened to stumble upon this um, planning exhibit and there was this, this work going on uh, for that area, I suggested to the team, well, why not look at a, you know, a pair of roundabouts here uh, that would allow um, the, the traffic to still move through the intersection but do so much more safely and slowly, uh, and it might actually help um, – uh, the goals of what the study are, and it might even, you know, one of the one of the sort of strange off uh, offsetting uh, benefits of a roundabout is because uh, the intersection is more uh, it's it's better capable of handling traffic. You can sometimes eliminate a traffic lane uh, either side of the intersection uh, because in in traffic design, um, the limiting factor is always how much. Um, how efficient is the intersection itself? That's where that's where things clog up are at intersections, and roads are often sized uh, based on what the intersections can handle or cannot handle. And so, if you have intersections that can't handle uh, a lot of traffic, there's generally a push to add more lanes uh, to the roads. But if the intersections can handle uh, traffic moving through there, then um, you can find that you can get away often with having fewer lanes, uh, which allows you then to have, uh, you know, other things that are beneficial uh, adjacent uh, to a roadway, you know, like sidewalks and landscaping or bike lanes or, or something else that, uh, that people can use and, and appreciate. So, you know, <laughs> my, my suggestion was pretty quickly shot down <laughs> at, at this meeting, you know, um, they looked at it. It just doesn't work. Um, not sure if it's the right approach, and uh, and, uh, and and maybe it's not. I'm not saying that this that I completely knew what to do here. But what I thought was instructive is often what happens in these is it, uh, what what I have observed over the years is that um, the professionals in the room uh, tend have this tendency to work towards the most expensive. Uh, and convoluted solution, uh, especially on the engineering side. So this is where the cynic in me can really come out. And uh, it's interesting, roundabout design uh, has uh, all the benefits I talked about before. They also um, don't generate the fees, you know, from an engineering standpoint that large, complicated intersection designs do, like uh, single-point interchanges or diverging diamonds, which... Um, those are all uh, kind of uh, wonky terms for some different kinds of intersections you may have seen, uh, at, especially at highways, uh, where highways intersect a, a large road. Uh, but those, you know, those take a lot more uh, technical expertise um, and often still have signals. Uh, roundabouts are fairly simple. Uh, it's, it's really a time-tested device. They also happen to be very uh, easy and inexpensive to maintain, whereas uh, one of the things that, that you learn about when you work on uh, in the traffic and the design field is that traffic signals are actually uh, extremely expensive and uh, require a, a lot of money and ongoing maintenance uh, because they're, they're built with all these electronics, and that, those electronics uh, all eventually go bad and have to be replaced. The poles and the mast arms and others all eventually uh, have to be replaced. Uh, whereas a roundabout is a very simple uh, and uh, elegant device that um, 
if it's designed right, it the main uh, the main long term uh, maintenance work on it really has to do with whatever happens in the middle and keeping it uh, attractive. So it was interesting to me, you know, I. I didn't. I didn't really push back very hard on folks. I just wanted to kind of suggest the idea. I thought um, it, to me, it seemed like a, a pretty obvious idea. But you know, uh, so be it. Uh, uh, at the at that point in time, I wasn't. Uh, it was not like a hill I was going to die on or anything like that. So then, a couple of years later, um, we have this moment in time uh, where. Um, uh, my wife and I have a uh, two-year-old daughter, and she's pregnant uh, with our, our next daughter. And she happened to be out in that same area. She was heading, I think she might have been actually heading to, like, the Target store. <laughs> that was right there, which is, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, sometimes you just do and you have to do. And um, she was... Uh, uh, driving the car with our two-year-old um, and uh, interestingly enough had our dog in the back seat as well so uh, um, the um, she was there with the daughter she's pregnant she's got the dog in the seat and she's sitting uh, at the stoplight coming off the freeway ramp um, waiting to turn left on to victory drive this this major roadway um and the light turns green uh she's at the front uh, she's the first person in line to turn left the light turns green she tells me now she tells me the story because i was not with her uh, at the time but she tells me there was for some weird reason um she hesitated for like a second or two before hitting the gas uh, to go into the intersection and, um, which is not, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say my wife's, uh, an aggressive driver, but, uh, she is a, certainly a confident driver. And, um, you know, usually if like there's, okay, the lights, here's, here's the light, it's green, I'm going. Uh, but there was, for some reason she had it hesitated for a couple of seconds in those couple of seconds, a truck going um, east-west on Victory Drive blew through the red light at uh, what seemed to her like about 50 miles an hour and narrowly missed her. She had just started to creep out into the intersection, but very narrowly missed uh, T-boning her. Um, and um, she stopped and uh, I'll, I'll say this about my wife. She's, uh, she's a pretty tough cookie, and she doesn't rattle easily. And she told me um, she just sat there, and she was shaking um, to the extent that uh, somebody behind her actually got out to check on her and make sure that she was okay. Um, because she knew that if she had actually hit the gas when the light turned, she would have been T-boned at a high rate of speed. And God knows what would have happened. 
And so that really sticks with me because I wasn't there. And through a weird stroke of luck, um, they were okay. But I literally could have lost my entire family uh, in, you know, in one accident, uh, in one crash. I think about that a lot because I remember how I looked at that intersection on a map <clears throat> and I knew that it was not a safe design, that I, that it encourages people uh, to speed through. Uh, and uh, the entire design of this, that street encourages people to drive at a very high rate of speed. And, and so in one sense, I feel some shame for not pushing harder, uh, to push the design consultants to really look at a, a different approach that would be safer. Uh, another part of me feels so incredibly fortunate, uh, that nothing happened to them, but also a hundred percent aware that crashes like that happen every day, everywhere. And so much of it is because of poor roadway design and poor intersection design. You know, the thing that you hear a lot of when we talk about um, traffic and driving is there's a very, there's a very quick rush to judge the drivers of those cars. They were, they were driving irresponsibly. Um, you know, they were bad drivers. Uh, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, if you're driving 50 or 60 miles an hour on a street where the speed limit's 35 and you're blowing through a red light, yes, you're driving irresponsibly. But there's also a lack of acknowledgement within the professions that we are the ones who created the conditions for people to behave that way. People respond to the environment as it is around them. And if a roadway encourages you to speed because it's very wide, uh, because there aren't obstructions, there aren't trees, or there aren't anything slowing your speed, you're going to speed. I do the same thing. I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. I don't want to moralize to other people about that because I know how I drive. Um, so I think we have, uh, we, when, when we talk about these issues, those of us in the professions, we have to look ourselves in the mirror um, and ask ourselves, you know, why do we ignore or why are we so reluctant to implement time-tested devices that really save lives? Um, why don't we work more towards that end uh, and instead of uh, blaming the victims, blaming the people themselves? Um, so this is this is this is always a tough story to talk about. I, you might, I don't know if I sound like I'm emotional about this or not. I feel very emotional uh, about it because I know that, um, we were just 
perilously close to a, a terrible family tragedy. Um, but I, I think about this in the sense that I, I, I want my colleagues in the professional world um, to not be so quick to just try to defend and protect uh, ourselves. Uh, our goal is to make better and safer and more enjoyable communities for the actual people that live there. And my family and I had a, a, a you know, um, I guess a near miss, what you might say, although I've never really understood that, that term very well, but um, that we made it through. But many, many other families have not. And they have had tragic results. Uh, and I think those are the sorts of things where we need to set aside our uh, desire to, to have a nice fee, um, a, a nice engineering fee, a nice, you know, unique, creative, clever solution, and look to things that we know work and that we can implement and do it, um, do it rather quickly. Uh, because every day, People are dying uh, or being uh, critically injured and their lives altered in terrible uh, wrecks uh, because of the kinds of places that we've created. Now, for the rest of the story. I, I struggled a little bit with how to tie all these together. Uh, and maybe there isn't really a, a, a good, good tie. Um, but I think it's important for us to share <clears throat> these stories that we all experience about life in uh, our cities today and, um, and how we can produ productively move forward. I spend a ton of time and have for years in, in the professional world with other architects, designers, engineers, urban planners, people who I really like, um, people who I'm friends with and, and enjoy working with. Um, I, I think if I'm going to try to tidy all this up, I, I would suggest that, you know, we are the ones who make the decisions and, make the changes that happen in our cities and towns. Um, you know, it's, it's not, you know, uh, the people working at a store or, you know, a plumber or, uh, you know, people sitting in an office. It's, it's people like us who are making a lot of those changes. And, and what I hope is that, um, we can approach, um, all of our efforts with a little more humility uh, I know I know many people already do, but I think it's important to have a sense of humility about uh, us knowing we have all the answers and being really resistant to input from people who don't like what we're doing, um, being open to the critique of people who um, uh, may disagree with us, uh, but also really embracing uh, traditions, human traditions that we know uh, – are popular, that work well, that, that regular people like. 
and that we have uh, a desire uh, to actually um, fix problems uh, at speed that we know are problems. Uh, this may sound a little bit like a contradiction, but I've kind of always had my personal approach and belief is that policy change uh, should happen uh, slowly and methodically um, because policies impact uh, so many people and so many diverse kinds of people that it's really important when we make policy change, whatever that policy is, that we take our time and we talk to as many people as we possibly can because that will make it better. Um, but when it comes down to a policy is ready to go and it's time to uh, go ahead and make uh, some physical change, we should be willing to do that as quickly as we possibly can. Um, and we should be willing to experiment uh, and experiment inexpensively if we can uh, and then learn from those and adapt and move on. Uh, and uh, I think if we had more of that approach, we would have uh, less really bad destructive policy that frustrates people. Um, but then we would also uh, fix more of our uh, issues in cities um, that also frustrate us and uh, we would do them at speed in a way that would give people real confidence in the people leading our cities and towns that, n number one, they really, really listen to us, like meaningfully listen to us, uh, and they make changes based on that. But also, wow, look how competent they are uh, when it's time, uh, when we've all agreed it's time to move ahead with X, Y, or Z. Boy, they can get it done quickly and efficiently uh, without spending a ton of money. Um, we aren't always as smart as we think we are. Uh, uh, I've had to learn that many times. I'm sure many of you have as well. Um, uh, I think uh, I think a lot of us in the field have really good ideas and and know a lot about what what uh, what we can do that would that would help uh, our, help people out and help improve our cities and towns. But uh, I, I would just encourage us all to adopt uh, some of those mindsets uh, as we do our work. And that, my friends, is the rest of the story. I look forward to speaking with you again and picking these conversations up in future episodes of the Messy City Podcast. Thank you. I'm Kevin Klinkenberg. Yeah.